This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Carolyn Cook, a CIIS professor and author, examines reading and writing as acts of consciousness. Her talk explores how reading is related to deep thinking and how, in a challenging world, reading itself can be a direct route to becoming a kinder, nicer, more interesting person. The lecture was recorded on April 13, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, please find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, what is literature for? And I'd like to um, dedicate this talk to Brian Swim, who launched a lot of the ideas in it uh, when he suggested that we consider co-teaching a course on philosophy and the novel here at CIIS. And we've been having uh, a couple of just really interesting discussions about what it might mean to teach the novel as um, a, a, an, an entry into philosophical thought. Um, so my thoughts are crude and new, and here they are. What is literature for? Part one, paradox and perversity. If you aren't already hooked by the idea of private life in a digital age, if you aren't in this room already, it's hard to convince you that you need literature. The Marxist critic Terry Eagleton argues that the novel reached its position of cultural power in the West as people moved from feudal land into the newly industrial cities in the 19th century. Working people first read novels aspirationally because they could read, and second, to learn the manners of the bourgeoisie. But think how quickly, in the hands of someone like Jane Austen or Charles Dickens or William Thackeray, the vivid description rushes beyond realism into farce. Farce, the realm of lost innocence. And the road just disappears behind you. A really good book can shatter your delusions in an hour. It can make what passes for real life feel like a fraud. Susan Sontag describes the experience of reading a short story this way. My heart should stop, start pounding when I hear the first line in my head. I start trembling at the risk. Maybe literature doesn't reside in form or genre in villanelle, realist novel, iconoclastic novel, memoir, pillow book, but in the private, subversive act of reading in which some DNA is exchanged between the writer and the reader. Maybe literature is the imaginative space between material conditions and some mysteries of the universe. Maybe we read literature to experience problems that are not immediately our own, not to escape suffering, but to enter suffering better informed. Paradox and perversity are, to me, the only plot there is. Life matters. We are born. We live. We die. We are forgotten. The world ends. The end. Part two. Cement memory. My preparation for writing a lecture called What is Literature For? includes 50 years of reading and the particular kind of thinking that comes from during writing and after. 
reading what one has written. This lecture is a container of thought, an intellectual road trip, or it is a sermon, a thrusting of the sloshing chalice toward you, the thirsty doubters and the hungry believers. The lecture is drafted in full in one sitting and revised as time allows. It details as vividly as possible a paradox or a mystery and makes one or two outrageous or indefensible assertions like the following. Reading can ratify a set of shared cultural experiences or it can explode them. This essay, this talk, is a form of thinking. You and I have 40 minutes to track the trajectory of a mind working through the problem of what is literature for. I am writing my mind for you, and you, dear audience, are reading. Part three, reading, writing, and virtual life. My son, an engineer at a startup in LA, now writes on an old-fashioned Remington Rand typewriter that, he's, that has been lubed and restored to an inch of its life. He enjoys, he says, the physical effort. He likes the vastly reduced efficiency of the analog machine. The rest of the day, he looks into three screens. The only rule he makes is whatever he writes has to occupy a whole page. He has about 60 of them stacked up beside his desk. He now, for the first time in my memory, reads actual books. Bukowski, Pamuk, Kamel Daud. He buys in independent bookstores and reads while eating his bacon donuts at the Nickel Diner. Outside the steamy windows, men and women pick up the ends of cigarettes from the sidewalks without breaking stride. My son says time takes him otherwise unless he takes it, bangs out a page a day, or reads 10 pages or 100 pages, turns them with his own hands. When did he change and why? It's a question for another day. Of course, we all need literature more than ever, and particularly, and paradoxically, we have more books than we need. The problem of books isn't one of accessibility, it's one of curation. And for that reason, um, I've, brought, I've brought you uh, piles of books from my excess pile. I vouch for all of them, and on your way out, I invite you to uh, take them off my hands and do what you will and have your way with them. I've only ever understood life through reading and writing. Like philosophy, maybe, literature gives us a wide, private space to think about how to live and be. Paradox and mystery are central to this work. My moral compass came with my earliest readings of the two great novels of adultery, Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina, novels about the fate of women that were, at the same time, protest novels about the condition of women, a reflection and a critique of reality. My own first book, a collection of linked short stories called The Bostons, began in an almost succulent rage at snobbery, classism, and misogyny in the world I grew up in, people I admired and loved. To fully explore this rage, I had to empathize with the enemy. In the years I wrote the book, I began one person and ended another. Part three, choices, influences. As a reader and as a writer, I demand freedom and restraints, a level of difficulty, a level of play. 
I enjoy the constraints of the Alipo, the oeuvre de littérature potentielle of, of the French in the uh, earlier part of the 20th century. Uh, for example, a novel written without the letter E, the games that Harry Cruz and company played. Reading literature is also a little like going to Burning Man. You can only prepare. Slather your bike chain with olive oil, bring sun and night goggles, pickle juice, potato chips, sardines, B12 shots, sunscreen, wings. Suddenly, your fire trap RV catches fire. The sky rains metal and burning plywood. Your insignificance and vulnerability become apparent and then vast. How different is it with reading? You sit down with a book, a blue pencil, a glass of something, a notebook for the ideas you'll steal, and then suddenly you leave the room. You're gone. Anna Karenina congratulates herself for not feeling what she's feeling, on not giving in to the feelings that she has, not for Count Vronsky, but for herself, and she goes to her son instead, her beautiful little boy whom she will lose, of course, she is so proud of herself for not giving in to the flirtation that will wreck her life. Part four, writing under the influence. A desolate January evening in 1972, an island off the coast of Maine, the usual frigid darkness already falling on our town. I'm sitting in a Windsor chair in the Jessup Memorial Library, reading Couples, my hair still wet from swim team practice at the YMCA next door. The librarian calls my mother at home. Carolyn is reading adult materials, <laughs> filthy books. Should she put a stop to it? I remember only being unwilling to leave the book, the chair, the library, or to return from the ineffable, almost erogenous zone where reading took me. John Updike's fiction, besotted with the junk of America, the ugliness rendered gorgeous but also recognizable, exuded life energy and freedom, qualities I associated with literature, which I associated with men. I don't remember reading women before college when a professor turned me on to Joan Didion. Her sexless prose, her chilly, neurotic habits of mind, her perfect pitch opened the world to me. But it was almost too late. I was like a dog chained outside for years before being brought inside. I had habits. White men were all I knew. Before Didion, my reading for pleasure, information, atmosphere, self-recognition, and self-invention was all E.B. White, John Cheever, J.D. Salinger, Joseph Mitchell, Henry Miller, John O'Hara, James Baldwin, Theodore Dreiser, Richard Yates, Richard Wright, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Philip Roth, and, of course, Updike. These spiritual fathers, heroes, and enemies ruined me early. Except for Roth, they're all dead now. How I miss the effete, prolific, claustrophobic, asthmatic, stuttering, psoriatic updike. Rereading recently his essay, The Disposable Rocket, a bold one, reasserting old saws about the differences between men and women, biology, destiny, the familiar trajectory of heterosexuality, made me cringe with a familiar irritation and envy. 
There's nothing in the disposable rocket I haven't heard before. The entitlement, the argument that takes its conclusion for granted at the outset, the witty euphemisms that polished New Englanders use to lubricate direct and blunt speech and which Updike constantly permits himself. I'm quoting Updike. From the standpoint of reproduction, the male body is a delivery system and the female is a mazy device for retention. Once the delivery is made, men feel a distinct falling off of interest. Yet against the enduring heroics of birth and nurture should be set the male's superhuman frenzy to deliver his goods. He vaults walls, skips sleep, risks wallet, health, and his political future, all to ram home his seed into the gut of the chosen woman. The delicate through line of woman revulsion famously runs through updike like like a red line through a poisoned finger. Psychosexually, he's all bad news. But because none of the women in Updike is real, our empathy remains with the hero, the altar author. When I say we, I don't mean that we all empathize with Updike, only that the books are structured in this way. In the opening scenes of Memoirs of the Ford Administration, the Updike-like narrator takes a break from writing his book about Buchanan to have sex with his mistress. Here he is after the ecstasy and the denouement. I itch to buck to toss off this itchy incubus moistly riding my back. I should be correcting term papers or working on my book, my precious, nagging, hopeless book. It's beautiful, Updike's great gift, this soulful cruelty, this perfect existential freedom, maybe even compulsion, to say brutal things well. The taunt of an early critic that Updike writes beautifully but has nothing to say seems to me beside the point. The point of novels is not information, but atmosphere. Atmosphere is how the novel says, and Updike's atmosphere is everywhere on his pages, as if testosterone were his ink. I hardened early into a certain hunched shape that was finally seismically broken open by James Baldwin, Elizabeth Bishop, Judith Butler, Lydia Davis, Joan Didion, Elizabeth Hardwick, Bell Hooks, Zora Neale Hurston, Audre Lorde, Alice Monroe, Cynthia Ozick, Grace Paley, Jean Reese, Richard Rodriguez, Susan Sontag, Virginia Woolf, Mary Gateskill, and other writers who gave me my first ideas about what it mean might mean to write the kind of book I hadn't read yet. But it was Updike who taught me first in the Jessup reading room as I bent my chlorinated head over those pornographically thrilling, anxiety-riddled and woman-fearing pages that you can say anything. There is nothing you can't say. Um, I was at AWP uh, last two weeks ago, and uh, Michael Silverblatt, possibly the most serious reader in America and the eponymous bookworm of the long-running radio show on KCRW Los Angeles, likens certain moments in life of reading, his life in reading, to being touched by lightning. And he speaks of literature's capacity to carry us beyond human levels of sensitivity. A few books have hit me like lightning. I think Updike's Rabbit Novels, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Ilyich and Anna Karenina, Flaubert's Madame Bovary, Didion's The White Album and Play It As It Lays, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, Baldwin's Stories and Essays Collected and Going to Meet the Man, 
Ellen Ullman's The Soul of the Machine, Rebecca Solnit's A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Jeff Dyer's Out of Sheer Rage and Zona, and Richard Rodriguez's essay Late Victorians, as well as all of his books. And I wanted to give a few examples of those lightning moments and invite you to think about um, books and ways that reading um, has, has sort of worked like lightning in your own life. Um, in The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, the Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami says that the world flows on strange currents, currents of history and memory, and we are born along on these currents, or we are stuck because of some obstruction in the flow of history, which repeats in unpredictable ways as the flow seeks to reestablish itself. There's nothing we can do about the obstruction or the flow. The strange, surreal stuff of history rises up in our bodies as if the generations were books stacked up and bleeding into each other, um, as if by osmosis. The most real thing Murakami shows us is to open ourselves up as vessels for the strangeness. Much of this novel takes place in the bottom of a well. Reading and the kind of thinking that is produced by thinking or writing can open an almost literal hole, turn us into a vessel of strangeness. A graduate of the MFA programs, a poet named wonderfully Elizabeth Bishop, used to write three poems a day and send them to me by email. Elizabeth believed that if she didn't write three poems a day, she would die. Writing was a way of seeing and noticing and keeping the portal open. Elizabeth would gesture to her head, and I knew what she meant, to close this necessary opening, the opening that unglues us from our own personal experience, is to me too like death. I love the privacy of reading and writing, but there is no experience I will not attempt to render in words. There is nothing too private to say. Another example, reading James Baldwin's Going to Meet the Man recounts the first-person narrative of a racist white cop on the eve of a lynching. It's the most life-changing story I've ever read. The paradox of rage and human empathy taught me that paradox, not psychology, is what connects us through literature to the mysteries and patterns of the world, the universe, and to the incomprehensible fiction of time. You sit down as one person to read James Baldwin, and you emerge another person entirely, sadder, wiser. You know now, in your bones, that rage is not one thing and empathy another. Rage and empathy are aspects of something that has no name. It needs literature to render it. Um, I'm reminded, because we have two of our fabulous theater performance-making MFA students here, of an exercise that Erica Chong-Shook does with uh, students in this room using uh, uh, Richard Schechner's Rasa boxes, which are based in um, the, I think, seven great emotions um, in Sanskrit. And people start by walking through the boxes and expressing the emotion of what rage or shame or lust or what joy. And you start and people seem sort of ridiculous. They're just embodying a simple emotion. And then Erica will invite people to linger between the boxes and feel what they feel when they're somewhere between joy and rage or despair and lust. 
and she calls that cusping. <laughs> and I think this is the province of literature. It's the cusping of emotions that we have no name for, of experiences that we have no name for. Um, Jeff Dyer, uh, the, the nonfiction writer mostly, he's also a novelist, has said that the problem about writing a novel is that you can't know what you need to know about the novel until you've written it. You can't start until you've finished. Out of Sheer Rage, his book about writing, uh, not writing, uh, study of D.H. Lawrence, the very book that we're reading, um, about the series of divigations and procrastinations and self-delusions that constantly interrupt his progress on this study of D.H. Lawrence, um, he thought he wanted to write. Um, in Zona, another book of Dyer's, a book about a film about a voyage to a room, Dyer takes the reader on the experience of watching Tarkovsky's Cold War film Stalker with Dyer. You actually have to get the movie on Netflix. You have to watch the movie while you're reading the book. Um, Dyer's frame-by-frame -frame descriptions of the film are interrupted by increasingly long footnotes and annotations about his response to the film, which eventually become indistinguishable from the presumably primary text, just as the reader in reading becomes part of the mind of the writer writing an embodied experience of inhabiting another sensibility, another person, no matter how close or distant from one's own experience. This task to move between a certain fluid, fixed, a certain fixed self and the humanness inherent in any written text, this is the great work of reading. <laughs> um, I have a quote from Charles Bukowski. This is part seven, Writing While Intoxicated, which I recommend. In Praise of Messy Lives, Bukowski said, this is kind of anti-craft talk, um, which is fun for an MFA uh, chair to, to do. Let's allow ourselves space and error, hysteria and grief. Let's not round the edge until we have a ball that rolls neatly away like a trick. Things happen. The priest is shot in the john. Hornets blow heroin without a rest. They take down your number. Your wife runs off with an idiot who's never read Kafka. The crushed cat, its guts gluing its skull to the pavement, is passed by traffic for hours. Flowers grow in smoke. Children die at nine and 97. Flies are smashed from screens. The history of form is evident. To concentrate on form and logic, the turning of the phrase seems imbecility in the midst of madness. Last part, writing as reading. Uh, I asked a colleague here at CIIS, um, the anthropologist Andrei Grubacek, what he did over winter break. He told me, I went to Siberia where I was initiated by a band of Cossacks by a whipping as I drank Cossack moonshine from the blade of a sword. <laughs> Andrei showed me the whip, which was ordinary, leather and black, the sort of item you might find at a sex club in New York or San Francisco. Then he secured the whip in his office and went on his way. I kept repeating the story to myself all afternoon, 27 words arranged, it seemed to me, in perfect order. I went to Siberia 
where I was initiated by a band of Cossa- into a band of Cossacks by a whipping as I drank Cossack moonshine from the blade of a sword. It's almost, I think, a perfect story about the way narrative works, about our yearning for authentic feeling experience why my son is typing on a Remington round portable, and about the thrill of living, the chase, and the equal to greater thrill of telling the tale. Um, My bias artistically, you may have noticed, is toward intensity, toward December in Siberia, toward whips and swords and moonshine. I want to write the way Lucian Freud, the great 20th century British artist, painted. One of his subjects described sitting for a portrait of Freud as akin to being flayed alive. And yet his subjects sat for weeks, nakedly, bloodlessly, frozen in chilly-looking poses. They watched their bodies emerge on the canvases, tumescent and human, wizened, yellow, blue. The motto on Freud's studio wall read, urgent, subtle, concise, robust. These are Lucian Freud's values as an artist, and they're also mine. I've stolen them. Who said amateurs borrow, professionals steal? I want to end by talking about qualities I value in prose and to encourage you, too, to think about what you value most in the work you read and write. It's not necessarily, and I think this is some helpful permission, not necessarily the values that you hold as a citizen. The best advice anyone ever gave me about writing was, it can be about what you've already written. The writing isn't out there beyond you. It's part of, it's part of what you are. Susan Sontag says in her journals, the greatest art seems secreted, not constructed. Secreted. Um, We own and are our own secretions, our blood, our tears, our piss and pus, but we do not control them. The act of reading or writing can teach us how to value qualities we already have, even, especially, unlovely ones. Sontag says in her journals, by refusing to be as unhappy as I am, I deprive myself of subjects. Jean Cocteau advised dwelling in the negative when he said, cultivate what people despise you for. It's you. I value repetition, endurance, exhaustion, obsession, personal and intellectual extremity. I love the new, wide, rangy, ravenous, impolite essays, Kristen Dombeck's How to Quit, Sex, Drugs, and Ryan Gosling in N Plus One, or Amy Fusselman's essay about reading and pedophilia, Maggie Nelson's essay about Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall, Eulabis on illness, or the long-evolving essay about grief and nymphomania, heroin, and solitary hiking that became Cheryl Strayed's best-selling memoir, Wild. Anything by Emily Witt. These expansive, immodest essays dare to be whatever the author wants and needs to express, which is famously how Tolstoy described uh, War and Peace, what I wanted and needed to express in the way I needed to express it. There's something immodest, impolite, impertinent, something previously unspeakable or at least unsayable, and those are values that I commend. 
new narratives for people of color, for women, for people who see the world with a special lens we don't see in Hollywood or in Starbucks, what my anthropology friends call the advantage of the view from beneath. I like essays, stories that dig a trench in frozen ground. I used to hate the word consciousness, but now I teach and share a program called Writing and Consciousness here at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, um, an institute founded by Alan Watts and Harada Shadri in 1968. We have the head of the Society for Extraterrestrial Intelligence um, on the faculty here who writes peer-reviewed articles about what kinds of music will make the best interstellar messages most likely to win a response from intelligent life in outer space. We have pioneers in the field of parapsychology who map the superego and id of cities like San Francisco. In a milieu where consciousness is so much a topic, I'm often asked about the relationship between writing and consciousness. To me, writing is consciousness. Reading is consciousness. At least, reading is the process by which consciousness is revealed. We don't, if we're serious, write to say what we know or read to learn what we know. Um, but to but to extract some part of the mystery to swim blind through ancient heavy water. The action of pen on paper or eye on page is for me an activating force. It's not a means of expressing what I think, it's, it's how I think. Reading is thinking, writing is thinking. Maybe I learned this from Susan Sontag. I learned so much from Susan Sontag, except from her fiction. Um, in 1970s, she wrote, I think I'm ready to write, think with words, not with ideas. So I've said that I value the unsayable. I mean, I value saying it almost for its own sake. I have maybe a warped sense of privacy or no sense of privacy. Eileen Miles writes, I don't see how people don't write about sex. And also, when are you not writing about sex? Sontag says, if only I could feel about sex as I do about writing, that I'm the vehicle, the medium, the instrument of some force beyond myself. I think writing like sex or like dying is an assertion of the ego, even of eros. Writing without eros, writing as if eros were not the sap that swells and liquefies within us, is a kind of lie. In fiction, especially, it's important to me to get to the truth, but not the conventional truth. I don't want reading to make me a nicer person. I want to drink moonshine among the Cossacks at 50 below zero with all swords drawn. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.